There are a couple of mats here in the front, if you wish. Or a couple of chairs in the back, if you want to sit on a chair. As usual, we will start the Dhamma talk with the Namotasa, three times in Pali. Namotasa Bhagavata Arahata Sama Sambodasa Namotasa Bhagavata Arahata Sama Sambodasa Namo tassa bhagavato arahato samma sambodhasa. This morning, in the 8.30 instructions, I was saying that all the different objects we have in Vipassana meditation can basically be reduced to six different objects or six types of objects. And these six types of objects, they correspond to the six sense doors through which we perceive different things. So, for the eye door, we, we are aware of visible forms. Through the ear door, we are aware of noises, of sounds. Through the nose door, we are aware of smells, taste, uh, fragrances. Through the tongue door, we are aware of tastes. Then through the body door, we are aware of touch, touch sensations. And through the mind door, we experience, we are aware of thoughts, emotions, fantasies, mental images. And this morning I spoke about the ear door, about noises and sounds and how to deal with them. So tonight in this talk, I want to talk about the mind, about thoughts, emotions, and so on. The mind likes to think, at least mind does. But as I have come to know, most of other people's and meditators' mind, they also like to think. The ability of the mind to think seems to have no boundaries. The mind can produce so many different kinds of thoughts. Loving thoughts, cruel thoughts, fantasies, plannings, joyful thoughts, trivial thoughts, nonsense thoughts, murderous thoughts, and so on. The list 
could go on and on and on. And so these thoughts, they can be either uplifting or they can be depressing. They can take us up to heaven or send us down to hell. The nature of the mind is to think, to produce thoughts. And the mind does this in abundance, sometimes more than we actually like. When I started to practice meditation, I thought that the aim of meditation was to get rid of all thoughts and to be able to sit without any pain or physical discomfort. That was my notion of enlightenment. After about three years of attending meditation retreats and also sitting at home, I was able to more or less sit for one hour without much physical discomfort or pain. So I thought that I was already quite close um, to the one thing that I thought would constitute enlightenment, no pain. Still many thoughts were around, but I thought that maybe another three years would be enough to also tackle the thoughts and to get rid of them. And so then that I would uh, be enlightened. But now, more than 30 years later, and after much more intensive practice, I have developed a much more realistic picture of the practice. And I can tell you a secret. I still experience physical pains and discomfort, and there are still thoughts. And by the way, even the Buddha, when he had become the Buddha, fully liberated, he still experienced pain. We know, for example, that at one time he asked the Venerable Ananda to give a talk to the monks because, the Buddha said, he uh, felt pain in the back and he said that he wanted to go and take rest to lie down. Or apparently the Buddha also suffered from headaches. So the more realistic picture of the practice that I have developed over the years, this includes... I have come to see that wanting to get rid of thoughts is not the way out of suffering. Actually, wanting to get rid of them, fighting the thoughts, creates only more suffering, makes me feel more miserable. I also had to realize that it is actually impossible to have no physical discomfort or bodily pains and that it is also uh, impossible to have no thoughts at all. 
like to eradicate them completely. What I've come further to see and understand is the practice of vipassana meditation is actually not so much about the thoughts, but rather about the attitude that we have towards the thoughts. And the practice of vipassana meditation aims at the deep understanding of the thoughts, a deep understanding of the thought processes. And if we come to understand the nature of the thoughts, the thought processes, at the same time we also come to understand the nature of the mind, because thoughts are an expression of the mind, a mental phenomenon. So when we start to really pay attention to thoughts arising in our mind, paying attention to the thought process rather than the content or the story of the thought, we come to see that thoughts are like clouds passing on the sky. I think we have all, you know, maybe stretched out, lying, we have all been lying on the grass, looking up in the sky and watching the clouds passing by. You know, we can see little fluffy clouds on the sky, or big cumulus clouds, or the sky can have big grey clouds, or it can be completely overcast with a layer of clouds. And when we watch these clouds, we come to see they are not static. They are always moving, changing in form, changing in size. And we see them, they come and go. And so even if there are clouds in the sky, the blue sky is actually (coughs) always present. You know, if all the clouds disappear, then we have the blue sky. And likewise with the thoughts, many different kinds of thoughts, angry thoughts, kind thoughts, compassionate thoughts, greedy thoughts, jealous thoughts, and so on. And also with these thoughts we come to see they are not static. They are also always moving, changing in, so to speak, size and form, in intensity. And they also come and go. And likewise, as the blue sky is always present, the the mind in its clear state or in its unspoiled state is always present. It's just temporarily uh, covered by cloud, by thoughts. Like myself in the past, 
many many meditators uh, think that thoughts should not be happening during meditation practice. And often they equate a good meditation with a meditation session where little thoughts arose and they equate a bad meditation with a meditation session when many thoughts arose. And usually the general reaction to thoughts in meditation is one of aversion or dislike or frustration and thoughts they cause um, worry or anxiety or doubts. As I said, the general attitude to thoughts is thoughts should not arise. You know, I have to get rid of them. And so thoughts are seen as an enemy. And an enemy um, is something to be eliminated. Or a comment that I often hear in the interviews is, I still have so many thoughts. And what I think then is, thanks God, thanks Buddha, you're still thinking. (laughs) Of course, I don't tell the meditators. Imagine what would happen if you were able to get rid of all of your thoughts, even the helpful ones, even the necessary ones. So in general, the attitude towards thoughts in meditation is one of aversion or dislike. And often this is coupled with judgment. Judgment about ourselves, like we are a bad meditator because I'm having so many thoughts. Or uh, I cannot do the practice right. I'm such a failure. So many thoughts. Or judgments um, about the thoughts. Thoughts are bad. They are a nuisance. Or thoughts, uh, they are counterproductive. Or thoughts, uh, they are my enemies. They prevent me from seeing things as they are. So in order to progress in our meditation practice, we really need to create a more conducive environment regarding thoughts. And to this end, we need to carefully observe and be mindful of the thoughts and the thought processes so that we come to a deep understanding what thoughts really are, to clearly see the nature of thoughts. And by seeing and clearly understanding the nature of thoughts, we also come to see and understand the nature of the mind. 
the fact that we do not really understand the nature of the thoughts in particular, the nature of the mind in general, is because we have never really uh, looked carefully at the mind, at thoughts. So if we start really paying careful attention to these thoughts, the thought processes happening in the mind, then what we discover is, for example, thoughts are coming and going. I mean, this sounds almost trivial, (laughs) but really we need to deeply see this, experience it, not only intellectually know it, but it must be a direct um, experience to see how a thought pops up and how it disappears. What we also discover is that thoughts are simply part of our experience, like any other object, like an itch, like a sound that we hear. We also discover that thoughts are not the self. And we also discover that the basic nature of the mind, namely its clarity, is not lessened or soiled by the arising of thoughts. The mind can be compared to water. Water, in its essence, is clear and transparent. But mud, sediments, or other impurities can temporarily darken or uh, pollute the water. But when we filter the water, then uh, the impurities are removed, and so then the water uh, is again clear and transparent. If the water weren't naturally clear, then no matter how many filters we would use, it would not become clear again. So if we launch ourselves into the process of really observing the mind to have a close and intimate look at our thoughts, then we need to befriend our mind. We really must make our mind, with all its different manifestations, our friend. Because only when we have a good and benevolent attitude towards somebody or something, only then are we really open uh, to it, are we really willing to engage with it. And so with the one week of metta meditation practice that we have done for the first week of this uh, retreat, you know, with that we have established a more open and kind and loving 
attitude in the heart, in the mind, towards ourselves, towards other living beings, towards any kind of experience. So helpfully, hopefully, through the practice of metta, there is already, you know, a basic uh, kindness and openness in the heart, in in the mind, towards any experience. So if we really want to have a close look at our thoughts, we need to be at ease with our thoughts. If we are not at ease with them, then either we are the slaves of our thoughts or uh, they are our enemies and then we fight against them. So, looking very carefully and attentively (coughs) at the thoughts, the thought processes, when they arise in our heart and mind, what we discover is that these thoughts are just a natural function of the mind, something the mind does. The mind has the capacity to think. You know, it's like the nose that has the capacity to smell, to be aware of smells. Or the ear that has the capacity to hear, to hear sounds, to hear noises. Or the tongue (coughs) has the capacity to experience taste. So likewise, the mind has the capacity to think. It's just a natural function of the mind. You know, in regard to hearing or the ear, the ear has this this capacity to hear sounds. So I think with the practice of uh, of meditation, you do not want to get rid of this capacity to hear things. Or you don't want to get rid of the capacity to see things. So likewise, we do not need to get rid of the capacity to think. So we need to understand that this capacity to think is is helpful on a on a relative level, it's useful in our lives. So, for example, to come here to do this meditation retreat or to come here uh, tonight to listen to this talk, you need it to think a little bit. You need it to plan to come here, to organize, um, to take leave from work, to organize your family, to organize your travels here. So this involved quite a bit of thinking. And so this was helpful and it was useful. And we also come to realize that this capacity to think, we make well use of it also in some of our meditations. 
like in during this retreat, we also practice the so-called four protective meditations. And all these four pro- protective meditations, they are based on this capacity to think. Like in the metta meditation, we use metta wishes, metta phrases to cultivate the quality of loving kindness, of benevolence. Or then the reflection on death that we have also done. Again, we take this ability to think, to reflect, taking again a phrase to reflect on the fact that we are mortal, that we are going to die one day. Or now we are engaging in the reflection on the non-beauty of the body, using the 32 parts of the body. Again, here we use our ability to think, to reflect upon these 32 parts, realizing that this body is just made up of a number of components and there's no inherent beauty in these different parts. We also come to see that none of these different body parts is the self or the me. And putting them all together, the body is not the me, not the self. And the fourth of these protective meditations, the Buddha Nusati, reflection on the attributes of the Buddha, which we will do in a few days, um, again uses this capacity to think and reflect, namely on the attributes of the Buddha. And there are other meditations uh, that the Buddha uh, taught, which also make the use of this uh, capacity to think and reflect. So we need to see the usefulness of being able to think, to reflect, to analyze. What we also come to see and understand is that many of our thoughts are conditioned by, by habits or by our general attitude. And this conditioning, as it has been going on for many years, many decades, maybe many lifetimes already, it's really deeply rooted and it happens so quick, you know, before we are aware, boom, already a thought has popped up. And, you know, for example, we walk and then somebody comes towards us and we notice the jacket that the person is wearing and then immediately the thought pops up, oh, what a nice jacket. I would love to have one too. You know, a thought based on greed. I want (laughs) to have one too. Or we walk into the dining hall and we smell soya sauce. 
and immediately the thought pops up, oh no, I, again, I don't like it. <laughs> so a thought based on anger, aversion. Or going outside of the hall, putting on our jacket, we may notice a thought pops up, ah, oh, it's really cold and the weather pattern is really changing and tomorrow is my aunt's birthday, I should have sent her a birthday card and oh, what is the lawn doing at home? You know, thoughts, just random thoughts based on delusion. <laughs> And we also may notice that during a retreat, the mind at times can produce so many thoughts. You know, the mind um, comes up with anything it can grasp. Because in a retreat, the mind uh, reacts to sense, to a deprivation of sense inputs much fewer sense stimuli than in our day-to-day life. And so, to occupy itself, then the mind just produces this seemingly endless stream stream of thoughts. At one time, uh, when I was uh, in Burma meditating, a good friend of mine was also there meditating and at the end of our three or four months intensive meditation period uh, we talked to each other and then my friend said that during that retreat her mind was just incredible in the way it would produce thoughts and so then she started to call herself chatterbox whenever the mind would start again on you know all these trivial thoughts she just had to you know smile at it and ah this chatterbox because the mind is so used to think it is it has become such a strongly ingrained habit And so it's much easier to be lost or to be carried away by a thought than to be present. And one meditator um, said that in an interview. He had said, it's much more fun to be lost in a thought than to be present. (laughs) Yes, sometimes thoughts can be an escape in order to not be present especially to avoid unpleasant or painful experiences. Yes, in fact, it's so much nicer to be lost in a nice, entertaining fantasy than to face uh, physical pain or a difficult emotion. Sometimes thoughts can be a source of energy. Sometimes it can happen when the mind is dull and sleepy that the mind pulls uh, open 
the the energy drawer picks out a juicy thought, you know, a, ju- a juicy um, story or fantasy that the mind knows. You know, this um, brings energy back to the mind. It's like uh, plugging the plug into a socket, and boom, the energy is flowing. Then there is another kind of thoughts that we have to be especially careful about. And these are thoughts about the Dhamma. And these thoughts about the Dhamma can be so compelling because they come along and say something like, you know, we are not the futile type (coughs) of thinking, you know. You can think us because we have thoughts about the Dhamma, you know, we are beneficial and we really help you to get a deeper understanding of the Dhamma. You know, just keep on thinking me and then uh, I will uh, reward you with uh, deep insights. No problem in thinking um, me. But we must be very careful that we do not get seduced by these kinds of thoughts about the Dhamma. You know, they can, see, they, they can seem to be so, so wholesome, so good. I'm thinking about the Dhamma, you know, what's wrong about it? You know, there is a place of thinking, also thinking about the Dhamma, <coughs> reflecting on the Dhamma, but when we are engaging in vipassana meditation practice, then even such kinds of thoughts should be treated like any other kind of thought. So when we finally do no longer resist our thoughts, when we finally do no longer resist of what is going on in our mind. Also, you know, no longer resist uh, emotions. Then we will begin to feel a sense of tremendous relaxation. In a way, it's so freeing to have, quote-unquote, to have permission um, to think. Because, as I said, thoughts are just a natural occurrence happening in the mind. So then we are freed from the compulsion to fight these thoughts or the idea that we need to get rid of them. And so uh, this feels as a tremendous relief. For me, it was also a big relief when I heard that even the Buddha had still thoughts. Because somehow I had assumed that, you know, once one gets enlightened, then one has no more thoughts. That was my notion of enlightenment. And so somehow I had assumed also that the Buddha had no more thoughts. But then after 
years of practice and after many years of having uh, fought the thoughts, then I came across a discourse from the Buddha that brought such a great relief. <coughs> and it was the Sutta, the discourse, with the title Thoughts are known by the Buddha. <clears throat> so at the time of the Buddha, a group of monks were sitting together after they had had their meal. And then they started to praise the Buddha's wonderful qualities. But soon they were interrupted because the Buddha himself came um, to that group of monks. And as was usual, there was already a seat prepared for the Buddha just in case he would come. So the Buddha then could sit down on that seat. And so then the Buddha wanted to know what they had been talking about. And so they said that they were praising his wonderful and marvelous qualities. And when the Buddha heard that, then he told the Venerable Ananda to explain these wonderful qualities in greater detail to these monks. Because the Buddha had previously talked in greater details about his wonderful, marvelous qualities. Venerable Ananda had been present at the time, and so he asked Venerable Ananda to tell these monks um, <coughs> in greater detail what these qualities are. And so Ananda did that, and when Ananda had finished explaining, then the Buddha said, well, I have to add something. And this is what the Buddha said. Ananda, remember this too as a wonderful and marvelous quality of the Tathagata. And when the Buddha spoke of himself, he would refer to himself as the Tathagata. So remember this too as a wonderful and marvelous quality of me, the Buddha, the Tathagata. Which is, for the Tathagata, feelings are known as they arise, as they are present, as they disappear. Perceptions are known as they arise, as they are present, as they disappear. Thoughts are known as they arise, as they are present, as they disappear. Remember these two, Ananda, as a wonderful and marvelous quality of the Tathagata. So especially the sentence, thoughts are known as they arise, as they are present, as they disappear. For me, that was such a great relief uh, to hear.
and a well-known Tibetan medita meditation master, Mingguo Rinpoche, said, The beauty of meditation is to become aware of thoughts, of the process of thinking to understand the mind's nature to think. So when we finally no longer resist thoughts, when we finally no longer want to get rid of thoughts, but simply observe of what is happening in our mind, then we can see and understand important things. So we see and understand that thoughts are happening, that they are a natural occurrence. It's neither good or bad to have thoughts, but they are simply part of our experience as human beings. Even as meditating human beings, they are part of our experience. So when we are mindful of what is happening in the mind, we can notice for example, the appearance of a thought. We might be really alert and present just in that moment when the thought arises, when it pops up. And likewise, if you are mindful and present, we may notice when the thought disappears, ends, stops to be. And so with this, we come to see and understand anicca, the impermanent nature of the thoughts, of mind processes. So we see that a thought, a thought process, is not a lasting entity, but it's something fleeting. It's coming and going. It's an impermanent process, like everything else. Or else we come to see that, you know, although we don't want a thought to arise, yet still a thought arises. You know, there was no desire to think, there was no inclination to, to think, but still a thought arises. Or else we might not see how the thought arises, but then we come to um, notice it, you know, in the middle of it, when the thought is happening. And so at that time, you know, we see it's nothing important and uh, uh, just a trivial thought. Even if we want it to disappear right then and there, it might not happen according to our wish it might still go on. And so with this, we come in touch with the impersonal nature of thoughts, of the mind processes. So we see that thoughts, thought processes, are impersonal happenings in the mind, arising due to causes and conditions. 
and seeing the impersonal nature of the thought processes of the mind. We also come to understand that we do not have an absolute control over our mind, over our thoughts. We can train the mind to have a certain mastery so that we can think those thoughts that we want to think, like in the metta meditation, or we can train the mind in, the, in such a way that we read, for example, the jhanas, where thoughts are temporarily suppressed. So we can have a certain mastery over our mind, over the processes happening in the mind. But we lack an absolute control. Or else we come to see that because these thoughts, they come and go and we do not have this absolute control, that they can be such a nuisance. Sometimes these thoughts can be such a torture. They really torture our mind. And so we come to see the unsatisfactory nature of these thought processes. We see the suffering nature. So in this way, we can come to see and understand the three general characteristics of the thought processes of the mind. You know, the impermanence, anicca, then the not-self, the anatta nature, lacking absolute control, and to see the dukkha nature, the unsatisfactory nature. And to really deeply see and experience these three general characteristics is very important in the whole process of purifying our heart and mind. It's really important to understand these three characteristics in regard to every kind of experience. Only this deep insight will be uh, freeing and liberating. So when we are faced with thoughts, you know, there are um, different ways of reacting to thoughts or dealing with them. You know, when a thought arises, we can get identified with the thought and then uh, we get carried away by that thought. Or when a certain thought arises, we, we want to get rid of that thought or we want to resist the thought. Frustration arises. Or else, when a thought arises, we can be mindful of the thought. We can be aware that this thought process is happening in the mind. And so, 
simply being aware of it without reacting to it as much as possible. So to be aware of thoughts is basically not different than from being aware of any other objects. Any other objects like a pleasant sensation, maybe a warmth or a tingling, or to be aware of a painful sensation, stabbing pain, or aching or throbbing, or like being aware of hearing, hearing a sound, or being aware of the moving, uh, the movement of lifting the foot, and so on. So what needs is to be aware, to be present with this experience, at this moment, how it is right now. Whether that be a thought, a sound, a movement, unpleasant sensation, doesn't matter. It matters that we are present, that we are aware, that we are mindful and in direct contact with the experience so that we can really see and understand what it is like. But when we are mindful of thoughts, then we must be a bit more vigilant. This is because of different reasons. We must be more vigilant because we easily get caught up in the thought, caught up in the story of the thought, caught up in the the content of the story. We must be extremely vigilant because we are so easily seduced by certain thoughts. We also need more vigilance because we do so easily identify with the thought, identify with the content or the story of the thought. We take it so personal. And as a result of taking a thought so personal, then we react to this thought. We react to it in our habitual mode. And so then very quickly we find ourselves already in the reaction to the thought and not the original thought anymore. So what we should learn is to simply rest our awareness with the thought, with the thought process. You know, it's like an old man sitting on a bench and watching the children play. The old man is just sitting there watching the children play. You know, he's most likely not lost in the play um, with the children. He sits there, watches it quite detached. Observing thoughts might feel not at all like meditating. Somehow 
it runs against the grain of many meditators of what meditation should be like, namely to get rid of thoughts, to get rid of thoughts so that finally uh, we can start to meditate. The Tibetan word for meditation is gom, or something like that, I don't know if my pronunciation is correct. But what it means is to become familiar with. And so meditation as becoming familiar with. So, you know, we want to become familiar with whatever is happening in our body, in our mind, including our thoughts. To really become familiar with these thought processes, to become familiar with the mind. So then, what's the difference between ordinary thinking and having thoughts during meditation? Awareness or mindfulness makes the whole difference. So if you are lost in a thought, overwhelmed by a thought, carried away by a thought, or identified with a thought, then we are not meditating. But if we are aware of a thought, if we are mindful that the thought is happening in the mind, that the thought process is occurring, then we can say we are meditating. It's really a fine line, but it makes such a big difference. So with our meditation practice, especially with our vipassana meditation practice, we do not want to destroy the faculty of thinking. Far from it. What we want to do with the practice of vipassana meditation is to understand the nature of thoughts, the nature of thought processes. And so with the growing understanding of what kinds of thoughts run through our mind and understand them, so then we are eager to weaken and eventually overcome all the unwholesome and unskillful thoughts. And then we really want to strengthen and cultivate the wholesome thoughts, the beautiful and helpful thoughts. And so this brings a tremendous relief. And in the end, this brings freedom. I will finish this talk with a thought by Venerable Tenzin Palmo, the English nun who has been ordained in the Tibetan Buddhist tradition for many, many years. So she said, Imagine that there is a loudspeaker attached to your mind and everybody could hear whatever everybody else is thinking. 
Do you think that you still would think so many thoughts? <laughs> Let's sit quietly for a few moments. 